Hi, everyone, and welcome back at the macro trading floor. The most actionable macro content in the world is found right here at the trading floor. My name is Andrea Stino. And I'm Alfonso Peccatiello. My buddy Andreas here is all pumped up because we just had the US CPI report. It's what is it, 13th of July, fresh after the US CPI report. It's surprised on the upside, so the transitory camp has to wait a little bit longer. But he has a funny story to share about how Fintuit is trading him of late. So Andreas, what happened on Twitter soon after the CPI release was uh, was there? Uh, I mean, I was probably tagged in like 10 tweets or something there about um, asking me whether I am still long, um, long bonds. And uh, the answer is yes. Uh, and quite frankly, once started rallying as soon as I was tagged in all of these updates, um, which is an interesting market reaction to this inflation report, because I mean, it basically surprised to the upside on right about every parameter, right? Even the stickier components such as service prices uh, surprised to the upside. Um, if you look at the past three months, I guess service prices are running at above 12% annualized now. Um, it's it's massive. Um, and yet the market is pricing in lower interest rates in the long end of the yield curve on top of betting on a 100 uh, basis points hike from the Fed at the next meeting. This is quite the puzzle. What's going on, Elf? How can you explain it? Extremely important point, Andreas. This is the first time in the year where we get a, a hawkish surprise when it comes to inflation, so a more bearish interest rate surprise, upside surprise in inflation. It was, a again, one of these strong month-on-month sprints where we both had core month-on-month higher than expected by 0.2%. That's quite a lot for core month-on-month surprise on the upside, so momentum of inflation not slowing down, even excluding energy. And then you had the composition of inflation broadening further. So you had 75% of CPI items going up by 4% or more. Basically, everything is inflating at a rate higher than 4% year over year. So it's broader and the momentum is going up. So it should be the most negative bond thing you can ever have, right? Once you have the Federal Reserve so committed in fighting this phenomenon. First time ever, Andreas, that the reaction is, Front-end yields go up, repricing, as you said, the more aggressive Fed. That makes sense. 100 basis point hike in July, priced at 40% chance, up from 10%, all right? Back-end bond from 10 year onwards, they actually dropped after the report. So you get a sharp curve flattening. We are used to see that curve flattening, pricing in a more aggressive Fed that will ultimately slow down growth so much that the back-end of the yield curve can actually flatten out. But this time, the sign in the change of bond deals from front-end to back-end went inverse. So front-end deals went up and back-end deals went down. And this is the first time that you get such a reaction. I think it's particularly important because it effectively, effectively from now onwards, if you get upside surprise in inflation, you will get the back-end of the bond market to rally, apparently. And that is something new. That is the bond market screaming that the Fed is effectively will over tighten. Is the bond market cementing their expectation that in five, seven, eight years forward, if they look forward, that this hiking cycle will get so bad that it will hurt growth and it will cement lower growth expectation going forward even further, all the way to make bond yields rally after a strong inflation print. That's quite the news. Yeah. And I mean, if we look at forward-looking inflation data, not that it's particularly precise per se, uh, but if we look at inflation expectations traded in zero coupon swaps, for example, they've been falling off a cliff for the past uh, couple of months. I think they're down ish 80 basis points since the high in April. If we look at the 10 year break evens in the US, uh, the front end of, of the break even curve is falling off a cliff for natural reasons due to base effects falling out. But I mean, st- even the long end is is, is falling quite materially, materially right now. That's usually a signal to the Fed that um, maybe the tightening um, as it is priced right now is, is more or less enough. Um, that's one thing. If you look at the NFIB survey conducted among uh, SMEs in the US this week, we, we see the early signals now that 
companies are actually telling us that they don't plan on hiking prices to the same extent over the next three months compared to the last six months. And usually this is a really good predictor of core inflation with a time lag of, say, three, four months. Uh, so I am fairly confident by now that in half a year from now, we will have a lower momentum in inflation. Um, and at the same time, the Fed will likely react to the spot inflation that we just received with an even larger incremental increase in the Fed's funds rate, um, which is essentially why the, the market by the end of the day expects this to kill growth to an even larger extent than already um, priced into to various forward-looking indicators of, of growth. Uh, so this is... The bond marking talking, the bond market talking really loud, uh, and it's it's one of the things that few people understand. I have to say that um, because it's it's a mixed bag of goodies when it comes to signal value, right? Pretty much. And so what we are looking at here, Andreas, is central banks effectively having painted themselves in a corner of looking at headline CPI effectively and the momentum of this CPI even core, if you can say the same thing. But the problem is that inflation is a lagging indicator in the cycle. So you have leading coincident and lagging indicators. And inflation tends to be a lagging indicator, tends to actually fall last effectively in the cycle once you have done enough damage to demand that is reflected first in the service and in the forward-looking indicators, then in coincident indicators, then the labor market starts to suffer a little bit, then finally inflation slows down, right? The Federal Reserve and other central banks are basically looking at the very last part of the cycle. They will be focusing on that, which means they will be very late in also pivoting dovish where effective inflation will need to slow down a lot. And this situation is and remains, I think, unfriendly towards certain pockets of, of the risk market that need support and good risk sentiment, they will suffer from earnings and from, let's say, economic momentum slowing down further and further. The Federal Reserve will be late actually supporting them. And are, do you think we are already, or we could be at the point, Andreas, where the labor market, for instance, starts to show some cracks? Because that might send some preliminary signals to the Fed that they are effectively getting overly tight. Do you think we are there? Do you think they will care if we get there? What's your take? If I look at my model package for US unemployment, um, then I would assume that we are still two, three months away from true signals from the labor market uh, in, in that direction. Uh, we have a few early signals when it comes to initial claims, but it's not a strong signal. It's certainly not a signal that will convince the Federal Reserve yet. Um, I think they will need to see actual unemployment figures going up. Uh, so the unemployment rate in conjunction with the non-farm payrolls report on a monthly basis. Um, and if you look at typical lead lag patterns between um, consumer surveys and the unemployment rate, then we're still two, three months away from that point. Uh, and they will probably also want like one or two months in a row so they actually have a confirmed trend um, in an upwards direction before they really react to it. So I think you're right that they are essentially more backward looking than they, they have ever been um, in, in, in history. Uh, and I think the reason why uh, dates all the way back to September 2020 when they launched uh, average inflation targeting, um, they said that they wanted to see actual progress in um, the spot inflation data before reacting to it at all. Uh, before then, they could have an inflation prognosis saying that in six months' time, inflation will uh, breach the target to the upside, and hence we need to react now. They basically scrapped the idea of doing forecasting at all, or distrusting forecasting in, in their policy rate setting. And I tend to think that they will do the same in the other direction now. They will want to see month-on-month -month inflation going down to... 0 0.1 to 0, whatever, in a couple of months in a row before uh, really turning. Uh, and that will be too late. I think it's as simple as that. Pretty much. I subscribe, fully subscribe to this view, which uh, basically, and as we'll recap in the post section of the macro training for what our, our tradable, actionable investment ideas from our side, uh, and also discuss the guest trade idea as always in the format. Before going there, I think we need to talk about the euro just for a second, because finally, soon after the non-farm payroll, we got the print. 1.0000, apparently, was reached exactly after the, uh, sorry, not, not non-farm payroll, the CPI print, of course, I meant the CPI print. So 
and he takes from this 1.0000 sort of print. Well, what's your take there? And, uh, I didn't know that the euro was a dollar stable coin, first of all. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, enough about that. I, I, I honestly think that the trade is getting exhausted by now um, due to the extreme spreads that we see between uh, European and US energy prices, in particular when it comes to natural gas. Uh, to me, that has been the sole most important driver of the uh, latest sell-off in the euro versus the dollar, that we see this big crocodile gap between natural gas prices traded um, uh, on the east coast of, of the US versus um, in, in the Netherlands. Um, it's of course a result of the ongoing dispute between uh, the European Union and um, and Russia when it comes to deliveries of natural gas. It's all of the speculation surrounding the um, shutdown of the Nord Stream pipeline due to maintenance. Uh, but I know that our guest of the week holds a very, very interesting view on this whole energy situation and how it will play out over the next three to six months. So maybe we should just get to it, Alfonso. Pretty much time to introduce our guest of the week. Time to introduce the guest, guys. I'm very happy to welcome on stage the chief strategist of Clock Tower Group. Before being there, he was at BCA Research, where he basically created geopolitical-driven research, the first guy out there. He also wrote a quite important book called Geopolitical Alpha, enough introduction. You probably got it by now. It's Marco Papic. Hey, Marco. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, guys, for the invitation. I feel like I'm part of the All-Star team now. (laughs) (laughs) It's our pleasure to have you here. Um, I think my buddy Andreas there is uh, jumping on the chair to ask the introductory question for your macro thesis, which is going to back up your macro trade idea. Go on, mate. Thanks, Elf. Um, I mean, we've had uh, a hell of a commodity market throughout the uh, early stages of 2022, and we've had a lot of debate ongoing on financial Twitter, in uh, in media, etc., about the importance of geopolitics when it comes to commodity markets. Give us your top-down view of commodity markets, given what's ongoing in Ukraine and elsewhere. Look, I think uh, I've been bullish on commodities since middle of 2020. And um, I've been also on the inflation trade the moment COVID happened, um, just because I had a framework for what the policy response would be. My Buenos Aires consensus idea, this idea that we're moving for the Washington consensus, laissez-faire, supply side, you know, capitalism towards something else. And so when COVID happens, I'm like, look, policymakers are going to go nuts. They're going to stimulate a lot. We have the green energy transition that's doing a lot of things to the commodity markets that doesn't make really a lot of sense. You know, you can turn off the capital tap instantaneously. You cannot reduce demand for oil instantaneously. It's going to take decades. And so there was like a time inconsistency in the agenda, the ESG and the green tech agenda. So I've been super bullish commodities and I continue to be on a secular thesis. We're still in an inflationary world. I don't think that goes away. But since May of this year, uh, I put on a long bonds, short commodities position, and um, it worked pretty shittily in the first part of May. Uh, in June, it's obviously ripped. And then uh, the one leg of that trade that hasn't really worked at all was oil until a couple of days ago. Full disclosure, Alfonso came to me like, hey, what's your trade idea? Like two, three weeks ago, I was like, short oil. Would it be much better to do that than to now? Oil has already fallen a little bit, but I, you know what? For the fun of it, I'm going to stick with it. Let's let's have some fun. Let's let's get Fintwit angry at me, and uh, <laughs> so that's my thesis. Okay, so Marco, you uh, flipped upside down the structure of the macro trading floor here. You went immediately to the trade idea before oh, the, tra- the macro discussion. But hey, from time to time, it's, it's cool to have some change, right? So mm-hmm. everybody knows now that you're gonna go against the crowd of basically the long oil, long commodity sort of trade, and you're gonna be on the short side. I guess the first question is, Look, if we look at the tightness in the physical market, if you look at the backwardation of these curves, if you look at the disruption in the supply, if you look at the barrels of oils being taken away from the Russian market at disposal basically only of the, partially of the Chinese and the Indian buyers, does this scare you when it comes to shorting oil or doesn't? 
does not, then why? Okay, so like, yes, uh, you know, actually you lead right into the next chart in my chart pack. I mean, it's, it's exactly that. Uh, inventories are undoubtedly bullish for oil. Supply is undoubtedly bullish for oil. But the thing about commodity markets is that everybody can count inventories. You know, this is, this is the easy part of getting the prices right. Um, and the demand part is the art part. And so my bearish commodity view in May was focused on the demand side of the equation. The second issue is that your point about Russia and oil coming off the supply, I, I don't know what that's based on. It's based on anecdotal evidence that there are refineries that had shut-ins because of backup of, of, of basically pipelines. Um, the fact of the matter is that Russia is producing and exporting more oil now than it was before, than in 2021. And on top of that, uh, I think a lot of the expectation that we're going to lose a million and a half barrels out of Russia is based on Goldman Sachs analysis they wrote in mid-March, kind of peak, peak nuclear war hysteria. Um, I don't see Europeans having the balls to effectively, um, you know, like cut off uh, Russian exports. And that's why this embargo that everybody talks about, do people realize there's a six-month implementation period? Why? Six-month for crude, nine-month for product. The reason is that literally Europeans are doing this so they can have on Corriere de la Serra and Le Monde and El Pais, like we stopped importing, but those barrels are still finding their way. It's a PR. They're like the whole EU embargo is just a PR exercise. It's not serious. And I think given European politics and geopolitics, the implementation will even dissipate over the next six months. Speaking of European politics in relation to um, the energy resource uh, consumption and the uh, question relating uh, to um, the relationship with Russia, uh, we know that this week uh, the Nord Stream pipeline closes for the yearly maintenance. And there has been a lot of discussions ongoing in European media on whether the taps will be opened at all again after this yearly maintenance exercise. What do you make of this whole debate, Marco? Okay, so like I think, I think first and foremost, uh, let's focus, to answer that question, I think we need to do two things. One, we have to talk about Ukraine and the geopolitics. And then we got to talk about like who has who by the pipelines, as I like to say. So on geopolitics, first of all, like look, in March, March of 24, March of 24, Russia was outside of Kharkiv. Russian troops were outside of Kiev. They were, they surrounded Shenihiv. March 25th, they withdrew. Did they say like, oops, we made a mistake, we lost, Ukrainians are tough, no. The Russian Defense Ministry on March 25th came out and said, we won. First phase of our intervention succeeded. We have demilitarized Ukraine, quote unquote. We're going to focus on the second phase, which is Donbass. So let me just be very clear. Russians have sold abject defeat, abject defeat to their own people as a victory. They've done it before. I think they're going to do it again. The material constraints to reinvading all of Ukraine are huge. I think they're focusing on Donbas, and you have this map in my chart pack where basically you have this remaining white part of Donbas that's held by Ukraine. Once Russia defeats that, I think they proclaim victory. They raise the mission accomplished banner and they say, okay, we're satiated. Why is this important? It's important because, guys, 12 months from now, we have Italian elections. Italians are the least Russophobic people in Europe. Polls confirm that on a number of different fronts. You've got a number of parties like Lega, Five Star Movement, Forza Italia, which are pretty pro, not pro-Russian, I don't want to say that, but like ambivalent. Uh, you know, Fratelli d'Italia, they're not actually intriguingly. They're pro-NATO. They're, they're supporting Draghi actually in some of the tough sanctions. But the point is it's complicated election coming up. And if over the next six months, this war is stuck in Donbass, where like the only way Europeans know where Donbass is is because of Shakhtar Donetsk. You know what I mean? Like nobody has any idea. This is going to move from front pages of newspapers in Europe to seventh page. You know, the front page will be cost of energy. And so that's the first thing. European reaction function is going to change if we're stuck in Donbass, if this is a frozen conflict in eastern Ukraine that nobody cares about. The second issue is the this point about Nord Stream. So like everyone's freaking out, you know, pipe, pipeline... Um, um, uh, like flows are down 60% in June. Clearly, clearly Russia is sending a signal to Europe, clearly. But they're also doing it at a time two, three weeks ahead of scheduled maintenance. Why didn't they do it in March or April or May? They could have. The second issue is they've turned off the taps to a number of countries that are already kind of fine. Other than the Netherlands, 
Poland has 100% of its reserves filled. So Poles are fine for the next 12 months. They shut it off to Bulgaria. Like, who cares? And Finland, everyone in the media is like, oh, my God, 86% of Finnish uh, natural gas comes from Russia. It's like, yeah, but they don't use natural gas almost at all. So Russians have selected the countries that are, like, kind of okay to shut this from. So where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is that I do think that there's a lot of brinkmanship going on. And I think what we need to understand is that Europe imports about 39% of natural gas from, from Russia. It uses natural gas for 25% of its total energy needs. So that means that 10% of Europe's energy needs are satisfied by Russian natural gas. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. But European demand is 74% of Russian final demand for natural gas. So yeah, can Russia mess with Europe for one year? Sure. But it's much easier to replace 10% of your total energy needs, especially because you can restart nuclear power plants, Germany. You know, you can do that. You can burn coal. Hell, you can burn wood, you know, whatever. You can get some blankets and space heaters. What you cannot do is replace 74% of your demand because Russia doesn't float its natural gas with ships. It pipes it. And they have not invested in any pipeline infrastructure to China. They just cannot pivot that much demand. So, you know, this is where you have to think about game theory. It's a game of chicken. Who's going to swerve first? And I don't think it's the Russians that are driving the G-Wagon. You know, I think they're kind of on a tricycle here. And they're facing Europe, who's saying, like, you want to go with this? We have a deep recession. We get it. But in 2023, 2024, you're not getting any of that 74% demand. Extremely interesting analysis, Marco. I haven't thought of the numbers and the geographic distribution as well that deep as you did, which makes me think this seems to be a game of who blinks first at the end of the day and or what are the incentive schemes from both parties to go longer than the other party until the other party basically gives in to your demands at the end of the day. That seems to be the situation right now. You're telling us that while the average commentator is saying that Europe will have to blink first, one way or another, you are actually telling us that Russia is more likely to have to blink somehow first. That doesn't mean, though, Marco, that over the next six to 12 months, things could deteriorate further in, in, in let's say, relationships or this kind of Cold War. So I'm asking you, how do you think Europe can handle the situation, the upcoming winter? Let me put it like that. What are the solutions that Europe can actually go to fix, go ahead and fix, try to fix the situation with? Well, I actually don't think there's six months. I think there's literally weeks remaining for Russia to be tough. You know, and why? Why? Because Europe is basically about 50% of its storage filled. Ahead of last year, as I said, Poland is at 100%. Some countries are way above their last year's storage numbers. So Russia needs to cut off gas literally August 1st. Like this July maintenance you're talking about, it, it's, it's got to happen right away. If they want to impact Europe in the winter, they cannot pipe a single BCM of gas through anything. So that's, that's going to be tough for Russia to do. Uh, so that's the first thing. If you look at the TTF natural gas December 2022 futures, they're already reflecting apocalypse in Europe. I'd be shorting that. I mean, we're not talking about that trade. We're talking about oil. But I do think that the TTF futures are a good proxy for geopolitical risk premium. They're a good proxy for geopolitical premium, not just in natural gas, but also in oil. And by the way, what that tells you is that when we went from $120 oil to $100 oil, which we've done over the last couple of weeks, that's been purely demand driven. And I'm happy because, you know, we got the demand right. We're very bearish China, not because of zero COVID, blah, blah, blah. The point is there's more downside to energy if geopolitical risk premium dissipates. And the fact of the matter is we're going to come to a head August and September. Now, who blinks who? I don't think it's really about blinking. I think it's about looking away. What Russia's trying to get Europe to do is look away. Like, guys, do you really care about Donbass? Do you really care about that? And I don't think the median European voter could give a damn about Donbass. Now, I would actually say that the median European did care about Kiev. I think the median European did care about sovereignty of Ukraine and independence of Ukraine. And like this idea that Russia just annexes the whole country, people in Europe will not stand for it. And they'll pay more for energy for to fight Russia on that front. I think they will. 
But now that this is like in some part of Ukraine where there's been a war for eight, nine years already, I think most Europeans are going to say like, hey, we don't really care. And that will fray, fray the implementation of the oil embargo. It will fray the temerity and the commitment of Europeans to all sorts of other sanctions. And I think that's what the Russians are trying to like signal to Europe right now. Why are we doing this over Donbass? So I don't think anybody wins. I don't think it's like, you know, I'll, like I don't think like Europe, like Russia just blinks and withdraws from Ukraine. It's more like, hey, we're going to keep this stuff. You guys are okay with that, right? The Europeans are going to be like, sure. Obviously, rhetorically, they're going to support Kiev. They're going to send some weapons. But in terms of implementation of energy embargoes, Europeans are going to cool it. So I don't think anybody wins. I think everybody kind of like gets what they want out of this brinkmanship right now. That's not reflected in oil prices. That's not reflected in the futures contracts uh, for natural gas in Europe. It's an extremely uh, both interesting and cynical analysis. I like it a lot, Marco. If we look at the demand side of the equation, you've referred to that a lot when it comes to your thesis on oil. Um, we have stories right now in the media of uh, Heathrow having to stop the sales of uh, new airline tickets as a consequence of a massive demand over summer for, uh, for tourism, etc. right? Why are you so, why are you so certain on the demand side uh, folding like a lawn chair during the autumn? What makes you so certain about that? Well, first of all, they're stopping flights. They're capping <laughs> flights. There's, you know, like, I mean, you know, if, if demand uh, was something that, like we could react to with supply, then maybe I'll be less certain. Uh, but but that's that's one of the reasons. I mean, they're they're literally capping uh, passengers at hundred thousand. So maybe there's demand for three hundred thousand, but we're not going to have it. There's staff shortages. There's problems. People are canceling their vacations because they don't want to deal with lost luggage. All of this is important. The second issue is China. China is really important, and I think way too much focus is uh, put on zero COVID policies. A lot of commodity bulls really talk about zero COVID a lot because it's a way to say, like, when this is over, boom, like, to the moon. And I got to tell you, it's the biggest red herring out there. I don't care about zero COVID. China is secularly in a uh, balance sheet recession. Since 2012, they've used the private sector to leverage the economy. In 2017, they started to deleverage. They haven't done anything. Household debt as percent of disposable income in China is higher than in the US. They're at the end of their debt super cycle and they're pushing on a string. Um, you know, real estate sales data, vacuous, irrelevant. It's basically contractors in China uh, trying to sell their current inventory. No one's building anything new. If you look at the long-term demand for oil in China, it peaked in 2018. I have a chart of that. It basically goes up from 2012 straight up and then flattens. Everyone's, again, confused by COVID. It's not COVID. China has reached kind of the end of its growth model. The second issue, more, more short term, is the fact that Chinese imports have been coming down, oil prices in Chinese imports, commodity prices in Chinese imports. And this is how we started with this thesis back in May. We saw the decline in Chinese imports and the fact commodity prices kind of diverged. Alligator draws charts. That's either going to close because Chinese imports go up or it's going to close by commodities going down. And we made a bet in commodities going down. The last leg of that is oil. So I think Chinese oil demand is not going to recover, even if they uh, end, you know, zero COVID. Now, Marco, let's say the geopolitical premium, which is priced in many commodities, but in energy, particularly oil and natural gas, as you were saying before, sort of fades away because your thesis becomes reality on the geopolitical front. Let's look at let's say that premium disappears but when we look at oil prices it's also an intersection between demand and supply as you were saying right so you talked about the chinese demand and we saw we see there is a deleveraging going on there slowing down you talk about structural what about demand coming from developed markets what about u.s demand or european demand not particularly for oil but i mean aggregate demand overall and i want to get your take basically on global macro here and uh, central banks and what, what they're what are they doing to aggregate demand and how does that fit into your equation very much so. I mean, it's part of the story. I mean, I, I kind of got obsessed with China in May. Uh, but I think you can just say, look, we're raising rates, 75 basis point flip. Growth is slowing down for three reasons in the U.S. First of all, the pivot from goods to services was always going to be iffy. You know, when the pandemic hit, I built a gym in my house. I spent like four grand on plates that I'm never going to use. I broke my back. Like, you know, I was a typical dude. Like, yeah, I'm going to bench press it. Bad idea. 
But now that the pandemic is over, I'm not going to go out and get four gym memberships, right? You're not going to like binge on services. Like I didn't get a haircut for like 18 months. I had my wife like cutting my hair. It was terrible. But now I'm not going to have four haircuts a month. I'm going to go back to the haircut. Services are not going to pick up from goods the same. That's number one. Number two, we've had oil prices, commodity prices rise. That's an input into the economy. And number three, on the on the growth front, nobody talks about, we have the largest fiscal cliff in history of the United States of America this year. The fact that we're not in a deep recession already is the sign of how much private sector demand there is because of YOLOing and fiscal stimulus. Anyways, the point is that there's headwinds in the U.S. economy. I think the Fed is late. I mean, you guys have talked about this. I think we're at peak hawkishness. We're at peak inflation. Uh, the numbers today, it's July 13th. If we publish this later, you know, the numbers came out over 9% in CPI. That's reflecting demand from six months ago. We're peaking on all these fronts. So that's why oil prices are so important. Now, you know, you guys asked me for a trade. I was like two weeks ago, oil was at like 120. Let's do oil. And now it's 100. Meh. It's not that controversial anymore. But here's what I would say. What's controversial are two trade ideas that flow out of this. Energy is much more important for inflation in Europe than it is in the U.S. You know, in Europe, inflation, like contribution to CPI is about 4%. In the U.S., it's like 2.5%. So if energy prices come down, it's much more relevant for European inflation. But I don't think the ECB is going to basically get less hawkish than the Fed in the equivalent of how much energy matters. They, they're going to get less hawkish, so is the Fed. Don't get me wrong. But inflation is going to fall more in, the, in Europe. So this is actually bullish, I think, the Europe. Because it means that relative to domestic inflationary concerns, the ECB in relative terms will be more hawkish than the Fed. So that's the first thing I think the Euro is bottoming. At period. I don't think we go much further or before below that. The second, and by the way, if I'm right on geopolitics, Euro is going to skyrocket just because that risk premium dissipates from the market anyways. The second issue is the obvious answer. Like on June 15, Jay Powell tells us he's looking at headline CPI. Headline CPI comes down because oil is at 80, if I'm right. I think we hit the bottom with stocks when we hit 3,600. And now everyone who hates me on FinTwit now because I shorted their most favorite commodity oil now really hates me, right? Because there's just this bear, like, we're going to go to like 2,600. It's carnage out there. No, and not necessarily because there is a Fed put. There is a Fed put. Ah, there is. But in a world of four, five, six percent CPI, you don't need QE. You don't need to cut rates. Fed put can be 25 basis points four times in 2023. Fed put can be like, simply moving away from 7,500. You have to adjust your imagination for the inflationary world we're in. And so I think if they back off, right as oil prices are coming down, if they say, hey, this was this is good, we're co concerned about growth, I think you can have a pretty good stock market rally and not like a bear market rally, like our rally. This is, in other words, 2015-16, mid-cycle slowdown, just much faster because it's a faster cycle than, rather than like an apocalyptic bear market. We always ask on the market trading floor to our guests, what is the most relevant counterpoint to their macro thesis, which drives their macro trade idea? So in this case, you're short oil, let's say. And so what would it be where you would be really wrong that could actually startle the entire macro thesis behind the trade? I think three things. One, uh, the view on Ukraine is wrong, you know, which forces Europeans to actually be serious about the oil embargo. Uh, and maybe forces the U.S. to impose secondary sanctions on countries like India and China if they import oil, like taking oil barrels off the market. How would that happen? Um, Russians think that they learned how to fight a war. In Donbass, they focused all of their forces finally. You know, they, they came into Ukraine 12 different directions. It's honestly, we'll go into the annals of history as one of the dumbest invasions ever. Um, 12 different directions. They salami sliced their invasion attack. Look, it was stupid, but they focus now on a single axis of attack. And then maybe they say, hey, let's do that again, but in Kiev. That's the number one thing. The, the second issue is something that I said from the beginning of this conflict. The reason you stay long oil, the reason oil goes to the moon is if the Russians abrogate their own supply. You know, that's it. Like OPEC in 73. Like so OPEC 
like there wasn't an embargo. There wasn't a, like a like a sanctions against OPEC. OPEC imposed an embargo on us, an export embargo. So if Russia were to take take out the milli barrels, and then the third issue I think is um, you know if we have disruptions elsewhere, like in Libya, if we suddenly lose all of their supply, if we have some problems with Saudi Arabia or Iran. There could be other parts of the world where supply is lost. But I do think it has to be an exogenous effect that impacts the oil, oil prices. Finally, I wanted to ask you about Biden's trip to the Middle East this week. I know it um, gets a lot of focus in, in energy media right now. Would you pay attention to this trip in an oil context? Of course. I mean, everybody says with great certainty that Saudi Arabia has no spare capacity. You know, and there was that quip where Emmanuel Macron told Biden that at, uh, I think, the G20 summit, you know, that was caught in camp. Like, hey, I know you're going to Saudi Arabia, but like they don't have any. How do we know? We don't, we have no idea how much spirit capacity Saudi Arabia has. They don't want to tell us. So I do think this is a very important thing. I think it's very important. And it's the, one of the easiest forecasts you could have made that America would have to, you know, put its tail under its legs and basically go to Saudi Arabia hat in hand. Uh, but, you know, one thing I will say, and I really emphasize this in my book a lot, that I do sense that on financial Twitter especially, there's an ideological c component to the long oil thesis. And it's like, look, the Democrats have screwed up. The, the green tech revolution has screwed up. It's starved fossil fuels of capital because of the ESG agenda. Biden is an idiot. Therefore, I'm long oil. Oh, also, I think a recession is coming because Biden is also an idiot. And I'm like, well... You know, oil tends to not rally in a recession. So, like, you got to pick and choose. And and what I would, what one thing I would kind of advise people is you got to bathe yourself in aloof ignorance when you're an investor. You're not a Republican or a Democrat. You're not even a human being when you're an investor. To be a competent investor, you have to not have any ideological biases. You got to fight against it. And that, you know, Andreas, you said I'm cynical. Like, hell yes, I'm cynical. You know, it's all bullshit, and you just have to predict the future based on material constraints that are facing policymakers. And this idea that Europe is just going to, like, you know, shoot itself in its kneecaps by being tough on Russia, I just don't think people are understanding the politics of Europe, the constraints of Europe, the constraints of Russia. It's July the 13th of 2022. We had the pleasure on the macro trading floor to have Marco Papic here, and now I'm going to give you the chance to recap the trade, if you, if you want to add what the trade is and how do you look at it, if you have a target in mind, maybe go with it. All right. I'm going to give you four trades and they're all going to be really, really, they're, they're, they're all, they're all there to gaslight people on Twitter. All right. Basically, these are, this is my gaslighting e, uh, portfolio. I want to have an ETF okay. that just gaslights through. Okay. One, short oil, let's say target of 85, like pre-invasion, okay. basically. Pre, pre geopolitical okay. risk, whatever it is. I mean, you guys can check me on that. Um, second, I want to short December 2022 TTF natural gas futures. Let's go. YOLO. Let's go. Third, I want to go log the euro. Wow. You're going to have, you're going to get a lot of positive comments from this, Marco. Yes. Go ahead. And, and, then final, and then finally, you know, like, screw it. Let's go log S&P 500. By the way, they're all the same trade, as far as I'm concerned. They're all the same trade. Um, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I know. I mean, like, I wouldn't actually go long the S&P 500, and I would definitely not go along the euro. I think the problem with currencies is there's a lot of momentum. Big currencies have momentum behind them because there's so much volume. The dollar is a famous momentum currency. It doesn't turn. Like, it's like an aircraft carrier. Like, you know, yeah. I'm worried. I wouldn't be going against the, the dollar right now, given the momentum behind it. Um but, you know, for the fun of it, let's do it. And then we can talk in six months and see how my gaslighting portfolio did. Marco, thanks so much for joining the macro trading flow today. Finally, uh, if our listeners want to throw garbage after you after this <laughs> pamphlet of trades, where can they find you and follow your thoughts on a more regular basis? So on Twitter, it's at geo underscore Popich. Um, and, you know, you guys will obviously, uh, we'll do PR on this so they can watch it and um, and also they can just uh, reach me on my LinkedIn or at marco at clocktowergroup.com. Feel free to send me hate mail. It's all good. This is all for good fun. Uh, at the end of the day, I think what's important also is just to have different kind of views to to check your own like, you know, 
positions. And and one thing I will say as a caveat, I said at the beginning, I'll say it at the end. I'm not I, I when I speak to pension funds and institutional investors, I'm telling them, look, you got this window where you can load up on commodities and commodity managers who are few and far between because they all got washed out over the last 10 years. But I'm an extreme bull on commodities as a super cycle. Um, and again, the twin reasons for that is lack of CapEx over the last several years. I mean, CapEx hasn't even picked up now with the last two years worth of commodity bull market, by the way. It's still low. And also because of the ESG and the green technology agenda, which is bullish commodities. So like secularly speaking, I'm long commodities. And if you're running a pension fund and uh, you're thinking about like, well, how do I allocate? You start finding commodity managers right now. This is your last chance before they jack up fees to 440. Oh, Marco. Again, thanks for the interview. Before letting, letting you go, I want to make sure I endorse both your Geopolitical Alpha book, which is awesome, by the way. Read it. Really, really nice. And also the work you do at Clock Tower, which is top, top notch. If people don't go and check it out, they're just missing out. Marco, Thank thanks for being, us, uh, being here with us. Really appreciate it. We talk soon. Thank you guys, too. You guys are awesome. Well, Andreas, the interview with Marco Papic was a lot of fun for sure. Uh, his thesis is quite strong and quite outside consensus, if you ask me. Uh, but it is always interesting not to close one else in any echo chamber and to listen to anybody else's uh, macro thesis as long as backed by a good analysis like Marco's is. What we just heard on July 13th, 2022, is that Marco Papic came on the macro trading floor and shorted oil. Right now, we have oil at roughly $97 as we speak, uh, the crude oil contract, front and future month contract. And uh, Marco expects it to drop in the low 80s with, uh, with an horizon, as always on the market trading floor, roughly three to six months for any actionable trade idea. He also talked about a bunch of second and third order trades that would come from oil. So the first question I have for you is, uh, what's your take on the macro thesis underlying this? And do you agree with Marco that effectively getting commodities right will get you as well all the macro right that is needed for all the second and third order trades he discussed? Yeah, uh, I mean, to be a little bit frank, right now you can get sort of almost every single asset class right if you have a direct landline to Vladimir Putin, right? Um, because I mean, um, everything from um, the commodity space obviously directly linked to what's going on geopolitically. Uh, but given that Powell has essentially directly stated that the price at the pump is more or less the new inflation target of the Federal Reserve, that's clearly linked to what's going on geopolitically as well. Uh, and by the end of the day, if the Federal Reserve cares about the oil price, then the equity market will care about the oil price as well. So, um, that was why it was so intriguing to have a geopolitical strategist at the trading floor, because I, I essentially agree fully with his view on the demand side. Uh, and even if, say, a uh, technical recession barely slows the demand for oil by more than half a million barrels a day, something like that, um, it is still important for the marginal pricing of a barrel of oil. Um, not the not least given that we have a supply issue. Uh, so I think it will matter if we have a couple of quarters coming up with extremely weak growth uh, on on the demand side. Uh, and as we also debated in the in the uh, intro, I mean all the signals that we get from the yield curve from forward looking indicators of PMIs, um, um, relevant surveys of of small and medium sized companies in the US point to a clear risk of a very bad autumn for growth. Um, so check back in front of the demand thesis. What I really like here is a geopolitical strategist telling me that I shouldn't be too scared about the supply side either due to this situation being resolved as a consequence of um, Russia having to fold like a lawn chair due to an income consideration um, of Europe being the largest client, basically. Uh, on natural gas. And I think if we get uh, a, a sort of a more benign scenario on natural gas, we will also get a retracement low in the oil price. Those two are connected uh, given the geopolitical risk premium. Uh, and I mean, I'm uh, who am I to judge on uh, whether Marco is right on his geopolitical thesis? I think it was a very compelling thesis uh, and something that I haven't thought about before. Um, so I'm very tempted to, to lean the same way as him when it comes to the bottom line. 
Yeah. Andreas, so when we talk about the trade idea itself, um, right here, effectively, the reason why I've expressed my bearish growth outlook and tighter monetary conditions at the same time in trades, not going into commodities straight away, is exactly because the geopolitical premium, it is very hard to estimate. It can go up or down very, very quickly. It can influence your trade away from the drivers we are able to identify with a certain probability by looking at forward-looking models and making our macro assessment. This situation is exactly very, very similar. Marco could be very much right on effectively, let's say, both parties coming to an agreement because the economic incentive from Russia is much bigger than people uh, actually assume it is. That's basically part of his, uh, this, the corporate of his thesis. He could be right, but honestly, I have no visibility on that. So when it comes to expressing trades, I'd rather stick to some other of the trades that he mentioned that are some sort of, you, you can say derivatives of a short oil, but also much more dependent on a slowing aggregate demand overall on a recession that is probably harsher and longer than people expect. And on the fact that central um, central banks are looking at lagging indicators right now. Mm. So the top trade we have been putting out on the market trading floor has been basically to be in bond flatteners. That is the best mm. expression ever two stands inversion to proceed further. We are at minus 17 basis points as we speak. Um, it's probably going to invert further. But today we got that change of sign that actually even on a, on a stronger CPI print had bond, long bond to rally. And Marco also mentioned that as a, as a, as a derivative of the short oil position. And that is true. But I think the drivers behind that trade will probably still be a better risk reward from my perspective, at least here, than to outright short oil. Do you have a different day or different trades that you'd like to highlight right now? I um, for, First of all, um, if I allow myself to venture into this discussion on the geopolitical risk premium uh, in the commodity uh, sector, um, I think essentially by the end of the day, what Putin obtained with the invasion of Ukraine um, and the annulment of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, at least for the time being, um, was the following. He obtained the possibility to price natural gas as a monopoly. Uh, because essentially he's on top of the marginal pricing right now due to the mismatch in the, in the supply slash demand uh, equation. Uh, that's really interesting from a pricing perspective because the equilibrium for a monopoly is not to stop selling. It is just to increase the price of what's already being sold, right? So I perfectly agree with Marco. By the end of the day, the odds of Putin closing down the entire gas supply chain to Europe is close to zero. I, I agree with that assessment. I could be awfully wrong, um, but I would tend to agree with that assessment. So if that's true, and if we have a sliding demand cycle more or less painted clearly into the picture over the next two quarters, then I am tempted to be short commodities, broadly speaking, across industrial metals, um, across the energy space, and maybe even to a certain extent, the precious metal space as a consequence of um, uh, the dash forecast that usually precedes a recession. Uh, so I've looked at the ETF called S-A-L-L, -L, uh, the Wisdom Tree Broad Commodity Inverse uh, ETF. Uh, so it basically gives you an exposure towards a bunch of different um, assets beneath the surface related to the commodity complex. Uh, and frankly speaking, I like to be short them all. Well, that's quite a statement. Also, interestingly, we had copper drawdown being one of the largest we've ever experienced in a month over the last 30 years, I think. But as my mentor always said, something that has dropped 20% can easily drop another 20%. That's the mathematic of downside uh, drawdowns, let's say. One comment in that regards. I think it's um, a statistic posted by our friend Teddy Valley. Um, he, he showed that every time we've had such a massive drawdown in the copper price during such a short time span, the average move in the 10-year bond yield is about a percentage point lower over the coming period. Something like that. Quite a signal. Now, one more correction there. And I agree with Teddy on that take and on that macro implication on bond deals. But obviously, the last time when, when I ran this analysis, I saw that most of these drawdowns, Andreas, happened in 2008. 
2018, <laughs> absolute level of yield was a bit higher. So repricing yeah. down 100 basis points is a bit easier. So you should standardize for the absolute level you start at. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I think the correlation still stands from a macro perspective. We're already seeing inflation expectation drop sharply as a result. You highlighted today, uh, five-year, five-year euro inflation forward is below 2%. So all of a sudden the, the ECB should be happy to be at best at neutral rates because you know your inflation expectation is at their target. There is no reason to overshoot. We are seeing some of the long end of the bond deals. I mean, look at uh, today, the, the, the euro curve is all over the place. Front end are up. Two years WAP rates in Europe are up by seven basis points. Third years WAP rates are down by 13 basis points. In the same day, opposite signs, 20 basis point flattening between the front end and the, and the back end. I mean, that's the bond mm. market screaming, basically. Last thing I want to say, mate, for the implementation, S-A-L-L, it's a short commodity, broad-based commodity ETF. If people are looking for a simple, unlevered, short oil ETF uh, to sort of follow up on Marco Papic trade, S-O-I-L, so short oil, S-O-I-L, ETF, I think is one of the most popular inverse ETF unlevered to short oil. And I, I want to conclude by saying you must be fun at parties with all of your adjustments to my quick takes here. <laughs> I mean, no, no, it's all good. I know you're right, but... <laughs> at, parties, at parties, I am fun because I make sourdough bread and pizza. That's very simple. Then everybody loves me, you know? Even if I'm not standardizing. If you're in the kitchen and not at the table. <laughs> oh, sorry, man. I, I couldn't resist the temptation. Um, but ultimately, we also want to once again thank you for all of the support that we receive. Uh, I mean, the amount of, of positive messages in the inbox, it's just uh, quite an amazing journey that we've been on. And um, if you want to support our growth, please continue reviewing uh, the podcast in various podcast apps. It helps us grow. So thank you for that. And um, we will, of course, be back again next Sunday with another round of free, actionable macro content. Goodbye for me, Andreas Steno. And from Afonso Pecatillo as well. And don't forget to at least tell a friend about the macro trading floor. See you next Sunday, guys. Bye.